once again to America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and as always, I'm joined by Professor Akhil Amar. America's Constitution is sponsored by Everscholar, and with the beginning of the lifting of the pandemic in the U.S. and hopefully Europe, Everscholars will be finding their way to Greece in August and New York and Massachusetts in the months after that for, wait for it, in-person, intensive, small-class seminar programs with the world's greatest faculty. We've mentioned in the past that Professor Amar, along with Professor Stephen Smith and others, will be leading an Everscholar course this August, the first American founding, it's called, and that the course was sold out. We had to reschedule that course a few times because of the pandemic, but it's set now for August 15th to 21st in New York City. Because of the rescheduling, um, we found out in the past week that a couple of people can't make the new time, so two seats in the class opened up, and you, our podcast listeners, are essentially the first people to hear about this. So if you relish the idea of a week in New York City with our all-seminar classes, where you can enter into a discussion with our great faculty, including Professor Amar, uh, reading a fantastic uh, curated syllabus ahead of the class together with other curious scholars like yourself, with the entire community of faculty and scholars dining together in casual conversation and visiting relevant sites in New York, then go to everscholar.org, find out more about it, and grab one or both of those newly available spots before they're snatched up. Hope to see you there. Check it out at everscholar.org. So welcome and congratulations, Akil. Thank you, Andy. Momentous time. We're recording this soon after publication of The Words That Made Us. I'm looking at a pre-publication version of this tome. And uh, naturally, you know, this is on our mind. And after obsessing about all the little details of it in recent months, I think it's appropriate to step back a bit now and look at the project in perspective. You know, there, there are surely many books out there about the American founding and even very big books um, about it. But in reading this book, and particularly reading it to the end and taking in the postscript, uh, I realized that it addresses quite a number of themes or memes, if you will, that are out there and, and it takes them on. You know, the, the wide angle lens that you describe in your preface uh, where you look at American history over the long four-score years uh, through the words of America, including uh, the Declaration and the Constitution, of course, but also the Federalist and the Articles of Confederation, the writings and correspondence of the founders, and importantly, the voice of the people through their newspapers and other publications. And this all makes for convincing, documented arguments on some of the most important questions in our history, and remarkably, you know, the scholars that you take on with these questions seem to have found their way uh, around the elite eight, the Ivy League. <laughs> so we thought we'd take a look at the, at the claims of some of these scholars and see what you have to say about them, and maybe uh, later invite some of them to come on the podcast and hash this out. So why don't we start with the, uh, the root of all evil, the, uh, the crimson peril of Cambridge. Uh, joking aside, Andy, and thanks so much for your kind words. Um, uh, you've been with me every step of the way. And it's very exciting that we are now uh, taping after the book has 
come out and some of the reviews are in. We're waiting for some more reviews. Uh, and this is an exciting time for an author because readers are starting to weigh in. Um, and I'm hearing uh, what people liked and what they uh, maybe liked a little less. We'll put some of the reviews up on the website also so people can see for themselves what we're talking about. So joking aside, um, Harvard is an extraordinary place, and it's actually the place where my book begins um, in some profound way. Um, The subtitle of the book is, the title, of course, is uh, The Words That Made Us, and the subtitle is America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. It's the first of three books, I hope, uh, um, if God gives me enough years, um, three epic um, big books uh, telling the story of the American constitutional experience, 80 years at a time. The Words That Made Us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840, which I hope will be followed by The Words That Made Us Equal, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1840 to 1920, and then uh, I hope the trilogy will conclude with the words that made us modern, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1920 to 2000. So from the revolution, really, to Reagan. Um, but I, I want to just, be, be, before we talk about Harvard today and, and a very important scholar at Harvard today, uh, whom I very much respect, but with whom I disagree, and at least three pretty fundamental claims... Um, but before I get to that modern uh, Harvard scholar, uh, the book begins in 1760 to 61. And that is one of the many things that I'm doing differently from uh, uh, some of the, the, the great scholars um, and, and the great scholarly works um, um, out there. Almost every book that you will see uh, about the American revolution, um, a textbook or a trade book, starts the story in 1763 with the end of the French and Indian War, um, what the rest of the world calls the Seven Years' War, uh, the Treaty of Paris of 1763, the loss of Canada, um, France's ceding of Canada to Britain, the uh, desperate need of the British nation to pay for this very expensive war and to do so by uh, adopting a a series of laws that will um, impose some taxes on the uh, American colonies who, from the British point of view, are the big beneficiaries of this um, uh, Seven Years' War, um, uh, French and Indian War. So um, the Sugar Act, um, the uh, Stamp Act, um, uh, paradigmatically. So, So... Almost every book you will ever see, um, textbook or trade book about the American Revolution, starts in 1763, and I start in 1760. Um, And Act One, Scene One of the book uh, is um, uh, an episode uh, in Boston, in the Boston area, with three really interesting protagonists who are going to help carry my story forward for actually many years, decades, generations even. Um, And they're all Harvard men. Uh, And uh, there's someone who will be destined to become the most famous 
loyalist in America, and I'm going to try to tell you, the, the reader, the story of the loyalist side as well as the patriot side. And our audience may not know this fellow's uh, very much about this fellow. Um, uh, his name is Thomas Hutchinson, and he's uh, epically important, and he's there, Act One, Scene One, and and he's a Harvard man. And by the way, the the, the most prominent modern biographer of Hutchinson is a very great Harvard historian, the recently deceased Bernard Balin, who write, writes a book, The Ordeal of Thomas Hutchinson. So I've got Hutchinson in a room along with another Harvard man. Um, Hutchinson is a judge. He's the chief judge of the highest court in the province of Massachusetts. Um, Among many other titles oh, he yes. holds. Yeah, he, he, he actually is the... The, the world champion at accumulating offices and, and, and what he doesn't hold, his relatives do hold, and that, that's going to create a lot of resentment. Um, and one of the people who resents the heck out of him is another Harvard man, much more self-made. Hutchinson comes from a long line of prominent office holders. His father um, was a, a prominent office holder. His grandfather was a prominent office holder. It's a, um, he lives in the... Uh, probably the nicest uh, mansion in in town, and uh, uh, he's very wealthy, very distinguished. Um, so, um, and one guy who resents the heck out of him is um, uh, an upstart um, Harvard graduate, um, uh, um, first generation Harvard man named James Otis, who is this flamboyant, crusading lawyer. Um, he's um, Massachusetts's answer to, or actually precursor of because he's, he's there first, of Virginia's Patrick Henry. He's this um, uh, firebrand lawyer orator. Um, and, uh, and then there's this utterly ob- and he, uh, obscure Harvard man who's um, uh, a proverbial fly on the wall. He's taking notes of um, this interesting proceeding brought by James Otis. And there's some other Harvard men in the picture as well, but uh, uh, um, presided over by... Um, Thomas Hutchinson. And Otis is going to become really important during the American Revolution. He's going to write the first big pamphlet uh, uh, attacking the Stamp Act. He's going to actually be the driving force behind the Stamp Act Congress. Really important um, patriot figure. Um, more important than Patrick Henry early on. And, the, and there's this third Harvard man who's um, uh, utterly obscure, also first generation, who's going to, who starts to resent the hell out of Thomas Hutchinson. Um, and who sides with Otis, whom he kind of looks up to. He's 25 years old. He's a, a, a newbie lawyer um, taking notes in this um, oral ar- um, argument that's taking place in the highest court of Massachusetts in the old state um, house um, in the middle of downtown Boston. He's 25 years old, and he's taking notes, and he's a nobody from nowhere. Um, oh, but he desperately wants to be a somebody from somewhere, and you're going to hear about him um, later on in the American story, uh, because he, be, he will become one of the six great men of the American Revolution, alongside George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton. And of course, his name is John Adams. And we've talked about him in previous podcasts, um, but this is his first moment on an historical stage. So Act One, Scene One of my book is 1760 and 1761, a series of... Uh, uh, events uh, in Boston, starring three Harvard men: Hutchinson, Otis, and Adams. Okay, so so Harvard gets his due early on in the book, and in an um, 
in something that we're going to be posting on the website. I, uh, the, the, the book is long. It's, uh, it's, it's War and Peace, literally War and Peace. Um, um, it's uh, um, um, uh, uh, Think Lord of the Rings, uh, something like that. So it's a, it's a big epic story. But for all its length, we, I don't tell everything uh, in the hardbound itself. They're extra notes, extra elaborations in our website, that, the Andy that you created for me, akilamar.com. And in the extra notes, I tell the story about how this episode, it's called the Writs of Assistance Controversy in 1760-61, which is really where the American Revolution, in fact, does begin. And Adams insists on this, and it turns out he's right, um, but for slightly complicated reasons that I explain in chapter one. Um, but in the extra notes on akilamar.com, I tell the interesting story about how this episode uh, lives in American memory because of um, later Harvard men who tell the story again and again on the Supreme Court about how the American Revolution really did start in Boston and not Virginia and how it's basically a Harvard story and not a William and Mary story, how it's really about the likes of John Adams and and uh, James Otis, and not Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson, and it's it's um, a hilarious story in the in the end notes about a whole series of later Harvard men, um, Harrison Otis Gray, who uh, joins the Supreme Court, and Louis Brandeis, who clerked for Gray, um, and Felix Frankfurter, um, William Brennan. Uh, uh, John, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, a whole series of Harvard men um, who learned their law at Harvard and got a local version of the story of American history, a very Boston-based, Harvard-based story. So uh, before we talk about Harvard today, I really do give Harvard its due in Chapter 1. Um, and I also just... Um, want to read one passage before I start dumping on Harvard today in a, in a playful way. And we're going to invite everyone who is critiqued in today's um, uh, uh, podcast to come um, on uh, our show at, at some later point and, and, and push back and, and, and make a case for themselves. But um, I also tell the story of a very great um, Harvard scholar that, uh, who... Um, um, really helps found the modern Harvard Law School and is the most important associate justice on the United States Supreme Court in the entire 19th century, who is um, basically the wingman for John Marshall as chief justice. He's a Robin to uh, John Marshall's Batman. And, of course, he's the great Joseph Story. Um, and um, I, I just do want to um, read a, a, a little bit of... Um, uh, my um, homage to Story. Young Joseph Story was already a remarkably successful politico and could have been an astronomically wealthy lawyer, but he preferred a life of juridical studies, that's a quote, the time to devote to the, in, to the enduring, quote, exposition of law, unquote. This ambition and aptitude for study and exposition led him not merely to America's highest court, but also to America's oldest school. As he added luster to the Marshall Court, so he brought glory to the Harvard Law School as the Dane Professor of Law, a post he accepted in 1828. Today's Harvard Law School houses a charming sculpture of Joseph Story, 
The statue presents story with book in hand. It is not a stretch to imagine that in the moment captured by the statue, he's making a profound point about the book, index finger extending out to engage us. Crafted by the justice's doting son, William Wetmore's story, himself a talented lawyer and an acclaimed sculpture, the statue resides fittingly at the entrance of the Harvard Law School Library. Joseph's story was to the Harvard Law School what John Marshall was to the Supreme Court, not its first man chronologically, but its greatest early leader. Before story, law was at best an undergraduate area of study. Many would-be lawyers did not learn law in college, but simply read law as apprentices and clerks to local attorneys. The few law schools that existed were not grand centers of scholarship. In the main, they were for-profit operations run by practicing lawyers. Story aimed to create a more scholarly law school in which professors would be more than mere practitioners and graduates would become genuine jurists and not mere pedophagers. As Marshall bent the arc of the Supreme Court, so Story bent the arc of Harvard Law School. Before 1828... No member of the Supreme Court was a graduate of Harvard Law School, as distinct from Harvard College, Story's own alma mater. But Benjamin Curtis, a graduate of the Harvard Law School class of 1832, an early beneficiary of the Story Revolution, would join the court in the early 1850s. Many more alumni would follow. Seventeen justices in history have reached the court after studying at Harvard Law School. After Story's remodel of legal studies, many other university-based American law schools eventually sprouted up in imitation of the academic template that he embodied and established in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Story's remarkable influence on the court and American law more generally can be seen even today in the striking fact that for every year between 1993 and 2019, one school, Story School, held at least as many seats on the Supreme Court as all other schools combined. And then there's a little um, footnote. Some observers have claimed that a small school, a small law school in New Haven, Connecticut, has also done rather well in this category. Um, you know, my, my son attended the, the Harvard Law School. I was about to say that because, you know, I, I thought of you when I described stories doting son um, who did this sculpture for him, because uh, um, I'm very proud of Matthew, and he is a doting son, and, and, you're, and you're so lucky to have him. You know, I, so I've seen Langdale <laughs> Library, thank you, and uh, when I attended his, uh, my son's graduation, uh, we thought that the appropriate picture was to get uh, he and his friends to sit down at a, at a table in Langdell and with their robes, mm-hmm. pretend to be studying, mm-hmm. even as they graduated mm-hmm. in the library. And we took a picture of them together there. Mm-hmm. So. Well, I've shown my son this. I said, now, Vic, this is what a good son does. He, he, he erects a statute to his father. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> okay, so... Um, Joking aside, we, I'm going to take on in today's um, episode um, some of the towering intellectual figures um, at Harvard, and I'm going to begin by identifying at least three things in my book that take issue with someone who's a, one of Harvard's greatest professors today. Um, uh, she's a prize-winning 
uh, a scholar um, um, who is a beautifully graceful writer and has um, for, uh, for a general audience and has written many, many um, uh, books that are um, uh, um, extraordinarily um, uh, popular and, and uh, respected. Her name is Jill Lepore, and in a recent very popular book entitled These Truths, A History of the United States, a, a 2018 book, here's what she says at one absolutely critical passage. It's page 94 of her book. Quote, Not the taxes and the tea, not the shots at Lexington and Concord, not the siege of Boston, rather it was this act, Dunmore's offer of freedom to slaves, that tipped the scales in favor of American independence. Unquote. Now she is referring to a decision, a proclamation made by the royal governor of Virginia, Lord Dunmore, in November 1775, in which he promises that um, uh, slaves who run away from their rebel masters and join the royal army um, will be um, uh, freed and uh, will be able to, 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 to fight for His Majesty's government. And Lepore says that's the tipping point in the American Revolution, that the American Revolution essentially was fought um, to preserve slavery against um, the British who were um, moving toward abolishing slavery. That's the fundamental thesis. Uh, let me read again the sentence. Not the taxes and the tea, not the shots at Lexington and Concord, not the siege of Boston. Rather, it was this act, Dunmore's offer of freedom to slaves, that tipped the scales in favor of American independence. Um, and when I, and I discuss this a sentence in great detail in the end, this, this extra um, end notes that uh, Andy, you and I have put up on um, our uh, website. Um, this is actually end note 68 um, from chapter three. You can find the uh, extra material on the same page on the website as where the book is. So under books, you find the words that made us, and then on that page, there's a link to it. And uh, that sentence really stuck in my craw. Um, subsequent to writing um, a very elaborate response to this claim uh, by Jillipora, I've come to realize that I'm not the only one who's really focused on that sentence. That sentence was relied upon uh, prominently uh, by the New York Times um, uh, very controversial and very um, interesting 1619 project uh, by um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, the originator of this project at the New York Times. She's a, uh, a journalist, and she won a Pulitzer Prize um, for the 1619 project. And the claim of the 1619 project um, is, is myriad, but one of its central claims is that the American Revolution was fought basically to preserve 
slavery. And people pushed back against Nicole Hannah-Jones, and, and she wrote this actually in an, um, an introductory essay introducing the project. And prominent historians pushed back on Nicole Hannah-Jones. I was unaware of all of this when um, I, fir- that I first encountered that sentence by Jill Lepore and felt compelled to, to respond to it. And, and my dear publisher said, this is really great, Akil, but you know, can you put some of that somewhere not in the book because the book is actually rather long as is. So, so that's why it's on the, the website. Um, prominent historians uh, uh, wrote an open letter saying, this is wrong. Um, they include Gordon Wood, Jim McPherson, Jim James uh, Oakes, uh, and Sean Wilentz, among others. Um, but but those probably most prominently, um, eminent historians, uh, and they said that's just not true. Um, and uh, the New York Times modified. Um, responded by modifying Nicole Hannah Jones's claim, in which he says it was really the pri- primary basis um, for the American Revolution, and they kind of tweaked it a little bit without quite telling the reader that they had, in effect, rewritten history or rewritten historiography, rewritten Nicole Hannah Jones's claim, and um, and doubled down on it, citing Jill Lepore, citing that very sentence of Jill Lepore's, the eminent Harvard historian. Jill Lepore. Um, now, who does uh, Jill Lepore cite in her book uh, for this? I'll come back to that in just a minute. The, o- the, n- the only primary source is just one letter by one unrepresentative person. Um, but before I get to that, um, just to bring the story up to date, as we're recording this podcast, there's a controversy because Nicole Hannah-Jones was voted a tenured offer by the journalism program at University of North Carolina, and then the trustees of the university actually pushed back against it. Um, and, and the controversy about Nicole Hannah-Jones in part boils down to um, this claim about the American Revolution, which in turn pivots on the sentence by Lepore, because Lepore is the most prominent academic, who, um, a tenured academic, um, um, uh, who seems to support um, Nicole Hannah Jones's claim, and it's this sentence, and this sentence kind of comes from nowhere. Truthfully, the, these truths is a very long book, um, um, uh, but uh, uh, let me just just uh, in terms of what you just said that it's that Jill Lepore supports Nicole Hannah Jones's claim. I think what you mean is that Nicole Hannah Jones relies on Jill Lepore yes. for support of that claim. Yes, I think that's correct. Um, and um, so what does Lepore, in turn, rely on? So first, she says, not the taxes, not the tea, not the Boston story, the Boston-based story that I began with, with James Otis and John Adams and Thomas Hutchinson in a room, not the Harvard story. She's saying that's not actually the real story of the American Revolution. And... Um, I think she gets that deeply wrong. That's the story that almost every historian for 200 years has, has told, centrally traveling through the Stamp Act and the Sugar Act and, um, uh, and uh, the Boston Massacre and the Boston Tea Party um, and the coercive acts which are aimed at Boston. Um, and she's saying, oh, no, that's not what... And, and Lexington and Concord and, and Bunker Hill. She's saying, oh, not any of that. And uh, one of the things she actually uh, says, and it's an interesting book, These Truths, it's a retelling of the story, 
and it's adding new stories, and that's important, but I think it's omitting old stories that are true, because when you're saying it's not any of that stuff, wow, and, and among other things, for example, she says at, at one point, um, she says, again, um, not the shots at Lexington and Concord. There were more than just shots at Lexington and Concord. More than 100 men died. Um, and Lepore, oddly, um, counts um, at page 92 only 12. And I, and I don't know where she's getting that number from. It's just not accurate and, um, on, on any view of the matter. Eight people or seven people um, fell at Lexington itself in the first skirmish, but by the time it was all over, uh, and that, but that's not 12, um, over 100 people, and, and there was more than a siege at Boston. More than a 1,000 men died or suffered grievous injury in ferocious fighting on or near Bunker Hill, a key June 1775 episode all but unmentioned um, in Lepore's um, sweeping um, book, um, These Truths. So, and just to recall, Dunmore's proclamation doesn't come until November 1775. After all this stuff, and so um, one of my biggest claims is the revolution is already well underway militarily by the time Dunmore comes along. You can't invoke Dunmore to explain uh, the revolution as the cause of the revolution because it's really a consequence more of the revolutionary war that's already underway. So the timing is all off. Um, But if you're saying it's not these other things and you don't even give an account of um, the grand imperial debate, which is Boston-based, and why do I keep mentioning Boston-based and Harvard and Boston-based? Because there's very little slavery in Massachusetts, very little slavery in Boston. And, and in fact, James Otis, very famously, the guy that I in, invoked in chapter one, is going to write a pamphlet, um, actually the, the first really important pamphlet uh, t- uh, criticizing Parliament and criticizing the, the Stamp Act and uh, uh, the Sugar Act taxes. And in that pamphlet, Otis outs himself as an abolitionist, saying actually slavery is wrong. Um, so, so, um, gee, if that's where the revolution really does begin, and if that's where the, f- the, f- um, uh, it, and which is what chapter one try, of my book tries to say, and if that's where the fighting really begins with Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill, that's not going to be a slavery story, you see, because they're hidden slavery in Boston. And what happens in Massachusetts? The Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, only four years after 1776, is going to proclaim that uh, um, everyone born in Massachusetts is born free and equal. And in 1783, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, the successor of the court on which Hutchinson sat, is going to use that very phrase that, that comes from John Adams's pen. He's one of the draftsmen of the, the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780. They're going to use the, uh, that phrase, that all men are born free and equal, to end slavery in Massachusetts. So actually... Um, the revolution re- results in abolition in Massachusetts, you know, not the perpetuation of slavery. So, and, and how did my story begin? With these three guys, Otis, who remember, the, the crusading lawyer, who remember is, um, writes this anti-slavery pamphlet, John Adams, the fly on the wall, who's going to draft the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 with a free and equal clause. And then the courts in Massachusetts, the successors of Thomas Hutchinson, um, that, um, the, the highest court in Massachusetts, is going to read that clause to say slavery is no more in Massachusetts. It's, it's abolished. Um, so um, um, 
Jill Lepore is focusing instead on Virginia. Fair enough. But she's saying first, not the taxes, not the tea, which are really a Boston story. Well, I don't know about that. She's focusing on this proclamation. Okay, but the proclamation, as you point out, is November of 1775. The war is already really as a practical matter in full force. Um, and, and the Virginians are all in already, f- frankly, for the most part, by 1775. Um, well, not that, only are that, they all in, but there's already a Continental Army, which is commanded by a Virginian. Up in Boston, his, and his name is George Washington, and, and John Adams backs him for that position, um, and absolutely right. Um, and now let's focus just a little bit more on what this Dunmore Proclamation is. Dunmore's proclamation is not promising freedom to all slaves. It's promising freedom only for slaves of rebels who escape and join uh, join up with um, the royal governor. Dunmore is, uh, and and the British government are absolutely content to enforce slavery in all sorts of ways. Um, um, here's, for example, another eminent historian, Alan Taylor, um, uh, and this is a quote: "While enticing slaves away." from patriot owners, the British forced runaways to return to loyalist masters. British officers even sent troops to suppress slave strikes on loyalist-owned plantations by whipping the leaders. Some officers also sold blacks, taken as plunder from patriot plantations. Rather than destroy plantation slavery, the British sought to capture it. So here's one way in which Lepore is wrong. The Brits were not proposing to get rid of slavery at all. Um, um, And in fact, the only people in the 1770s who are proposing to end slavery altogether are the revolutionaries. So let me take a step back and tell you a little bit about the history of slavery. Slavery does not begin in the world in 1619, no matter what the New York Times might say. Um, Slavery has basically existed from ancient times in almost every society in some form or other, some form of unfreedom. The ancient world had a concept, it's true, of freeing slaves, emancipation, manumission. You can see it in the Old Testament. You can see it in the New Testament. If you're into literature, um, if, you, if you taste inclined toward the serious, you'd, say, you, you'd think of Charlton Heston and Ben-Hur, who was enslaved and then freed by his master um, for a heroic deed. If your taste runs more to the comedic, um, you might think of uh, Zero Mostel in one of his spectacular performances um, um, in A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, A Slave Conniving for His Freedom. I think his name is Severus. Um, and so the ancient... And Roman satire, by the way. Uh, some of the great works of Roman satire involve these incredible feasts that are actually given by former slaves that, that, that became wealthy in Rome later. So there is a concept of freedom freedom and free and slaves winning their freedom or being freed emancipation manumission here's what there is not there is not the concept of ending slavery everywhere there's not the concept of abolition the world's first abolition society forms in america in 1775 the very year that lapore is saying is all about um Americans revolting to protect slavery. And the world's first abolition society is formed in Pennsylvania in 1775. It's not formed in Britain. It's formed in Pennsylvania 
um, Quaker-inspired in some ways. Um, later um, on, this organization will um, and its allies will end slavery altogether in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania statutes in 1780 will provide for the gradual abolition, complete and total abolition of slavery. Now, it's, it's, it's on a timeline, but they're going to end slavery, and that's 1780, and, and the Brits haven't done anything like that, um, and Dunmore hasn't proposed anything like that, and the later presidents of this abolition society, which succeeds in 1780 in abolishing slavery in the former colony, now independent state of Pennsylvania, are two people who signed the Declaration of Independence from Pennsylvania, Benjamin Franklin and Benjamin Rush. By 1790, Franklin is going to be proposing abolition, abolition petitions to the, the new Congress. So, so I, um, I think the poor really radically overstates uh, I'm going to read it again. Well, before you do, I mean, let's just assume for a moment that everyone in the South, let's say, um, hears Dunmore's population proclamation and says, oh, we need to preserve slavery. What are our choices? Well, we can rebel, in which case they're going to, our, our slaves can run away and be, and be freed, or we cannot rebel in which case we're going to keep our slaves. So why is that an incentive to fight the revolution? It's an incentive to not fight the revolution. Um, uh, well, if you think the Brits are going to win, and you're pretty sure they're going to win, then you want to stay on their side, and they're saying if you're a loyalist, you can keep your slaves. If you're a rebel, you'll lose your slaves. Exactly so. So, so that's the... Um, now, um, it is true that the, that the poor does have... One piece of evidence. It's a South Carolinian who's writing to another South Carolinian saying Dunmore's proclamation is the straw that breaks the camel's back. But the South Carolinians have never been in America representative. Um, um, as I show in, in my book, um, the Virginians at this time are basically opposed to slavery. Even if they're slaveholders, they're anxious about slavery. Um, uh, people like Thomas Jefferson are going to be uh, uh, proposing a Northwest ordinance that ends slave, that prohibits slavery um, in the West. Um, um, James Madison is going to push a version of that through that Northwest ordinance as a statute in the first Congress. George Washington is going to sign that bill into law. George Washington, in his last act on this earth, is going to provide in his last will and testament for the freeing of the slaves. Those are the leading Virginians, people like Jefferson and Madison and Washington. And at the time of the Revolution, they're embarrassed about slavery, uh, frankly. Now, the South Carolinians aren't. They're proud slaveholders, but let's now just review the bidding. Boston... The Massachusetts people are opposed, there's, are opposed to slavery, the James Otis's of the world. Um, um, uh, the middle colonies, the Ben Franklins of the world, the Pennsylvanians are opposed to slavery, and, and, and the Massachusetts people get rid of slavery, and the Pennsylvanians get rid of slavery. Abolish it altogether. And they're not the only ones. By um, uh, So um, Connecticut, uh, New Hampshire gets rid of slavery, Rhode Island, uh, uh, and, and that's before the Constitution, um, um, Rhode Island and Connecticut put slavery on a path of um, ultimate abolition. 
um, before the Constitutional Convention. Um, in the 1790s, New Jersey and New York are going to provide for gradual emancipation statutes, excuse me, gra 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 gradual abolition statutes. Pennsylvania, as I told you, already did the same thing by statute in 1780. So the and North then when Vermont enters the Union as a state, at that time their, their constitution uh, prohibits slavery. Okay, so that's, that's the North. Um, and, uh, and it could have happened in Virginia. There were movements for that effect, um, to that effect. They, in the end, never quite materialized um, or became effective. Um, but um, um, William and Mary gives an honorary degree to um, the uh, great abolitionist Granville Sharp um, in, in this period. There are lots of abolitionists in abolitionists, not just people freeing slaves, but proposing to end slavery altogether. Now, the South Carolinians were never in that group, but Lepore is, extra, uh, is extrapolating just from one South Carolinian in a letter to another. And again, all of this is way after the war as a practical matter, has already started. The war has, is already well underway by November 75. And to repeat, Denmore isn't to prom, uh, uh, um, uh, promising anything like abolition. The Brits don't do any abolition really until 1833. So, so Not only that, but slavery, uh, British slavery at that time in the West Indies was arguably... Worst of all, yes, right. yes. So, so, so where's the indication that the, that that you know that this is the orientation look, of the Britain? Look, British? I I believe in um, calling out, you know, all of America's sins, and I promise you, in this book, I talk a lot about slavery and and the ways in which actually the Constitution, as opposed to the American Revolution, um, has pro-slavery elements, the Three Fifths Clause, um, but you can. You can, and, and we need to talk about all of America's sins. But talking about all of America's sins doesn't erase the fact that the Brits were worse. And that's what I say in my book, and that's what Lepore doesn't quite acknowledge because I think her book, you know, enjoys kind of poking um, uh, American patriots, but only at the expense of turning the Brits into heroes, which they were not at all. And why do I feel that particularly powerful? Because my parents are still alive. They were born in Britain, excuse me, India under the British Raj. Um, and my dad tells me about when he was growing up, what the Brits did in India, um, which was not very respectful of um, uh, uh, colored people in, in, in my dad's part of the world. So, so um, it's going to take a lot to persuade me, oh, the Brits, they were the real heroes of the story and the Americans were the villains. Um, an analogy that you and I have talked about offline is the following. In order to win the Revolutionary War, there has to be an alliance of all the colonies. Um, and they're not really, they don't actually see the world the same. In New England, they actually think slavery is bad. Um, and it's not very prominent, and they're getting rid of it. And that's true all the way down to Pennsylvania. The Virginians are conflicted. The South Carolinians and the Georgians like slavery, and they're, they're proud slaveholders. And there's a, a marriage of convenience of sorts. Um, um, and the analogy is, oh, in, in World War II, the Americans create um, an alliance of convenience with Stalin, and he's not our friend, he, truthfully. He doesn't really believe in our way of life. You know, We say, oh, Uncle Joe and all the rest, um, but he's not 
um, so great. But to defeat Hitler, there's an alliance of convenience. And then after Hitler is defeated, oh, there's serious tension between the United States and the Soviet Union. So too, there's when the, the, uh, the North and the South have to get together to beat the Brits, and after the war, there's going to be serious tension between the anti-slavery North and the pro-slavery Deep South of uh, South Carolina and Georgia, and eventually that tension is going to manifest itself in the uh, Constitutional Convention and the Three-Fifths Clause, and, and eventually it's going to lead to a, a civil war. But he, just to repeat, it is not the case the following sentence really is sound. Here's Jill Lepore's sentence. Not the taxes and the tea, not the shots at Lexington and Concord, not the siege of Boston. Rather, it was this act, Dunmore's offer of freedom to slaves, not, he doesn't say patriot slaves, but just all slaves, that tipped the scales in favor of American independence. Wow, that's a huge, huge causal claim dismissing the coercive acts and almost everything in the Declaration of Independence um, and the Stamp Act and the Sugar Act and just all the, the standard story of American history, not just a Mars story, but almost all the other historians for 200 years. She just dismisses that with a single sentence and really flimsy evidence. That's a huge causal claim. And so that's my first big objection to Lepore, and that's an important sentence because it's been relied upon by the 1619 Project, and it's been, that's the sentence that's been um, pointedly um, repudiated by the likes of Gordon Wood, James McPherson, Jim Oakes, um, and Sean Wilentz. And I hadn't known all of that when I, I, I wrote this endnote, but, but I'm more confident about my view now than I was um, uh, even back then. So that's, that's my first big criticism of a, a really eminent Harvard professor who's done lots of great work elsewhere, but on this one, I just can't, uh, I can't agree. You know, one might, uh, you know, wonder, it's, it's a big claim, and it's kind of says, said in passing, and it's not heavily footnoted. Yeah. So one wonders if it's just sort of a, mistake like not you know something and, and, that wasn't and, 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 you know deeply edited or something and like that and people make mistakes and so then when that happens um you uh, a, a scholar should correct them one of the things that i like about these end notes is i'm actually trying to catch my mistakes and correct them there there are errata that are identified as such in these end notes and i'm going to keep updating that and I, I need to do that for my previous books too i think that should be the new model for scholars, the internet makes this possible that when we see mistakes in our own work, we try to somehow flag them in an intern in a, on a website that's keyed to the books. Now, you mentioned that there were other uh, items that you took issue with in this book. So here's a second and closely related one from uh, Professor Lepore's book. These truths, and of course, that title is coming from the Declaration of Independence. She's talking about the same, you know, American history story, American history story that I am, and and that's um, uh, and I have an account of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and so does she. Um, here's what she says about the Constitutional Convention. Um, on July 11th, James Wilson asked why, if slaves were admitted as people, they weren't admitted as citizens, and then. Why are they not admitted on an equality with white citizens? And if they weren't admitted as people, are they admitted as property? 
then why is no other property admitted into the computation? Okay, so this is July um, 11th, 1787, the Federal Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. Here's what she goes on to say. The convention was very nearly at an impasse, broken only by a deal involving the Northwest Territory. A Northwest Ordinance decreeing that any new states entering the Union formed north of the Ohio River would be without slavery, while those south of Ohio would continue slavery. The measure passed on July 13th. Four days later, the convention adopted what's known as the Connecticut Compromise, establishing equal representation in the Senate with two senators for each state and proportionate representation in the House of Representatives. um, And she goes on. Now, this is completely garbled. Um, And it's not the same topic. It's slavery. Okay, but now it's slavery in the Constitution rather than slavery in the Revolution. But nothing adds up. It it, it just makes no sense. The Northwest Ordinance was not adopted by the Philadelphia Convention. It was adopted by the Confederation Congress. They weren't meeting. They were meeting in New York City. Different group of people, different city. They were meeting in the summer of 1787, um, as was the Philadelphia Convention, but all of this is just completely um, garbled. Um, just, just to be clear for our listeners, the, the Confederation Congress was the governmental body of the Articles of Confederation. This is not Congress. As we, as we think of it later. Correct. So just again, to re- let me just quote this, because um, these are really big issues in American history. What does that, um, what, what's the relationship between slavery and the American Revolution in 1776? Um, what, what's the relationship between slavery and the Constitution? Um, and I think that they're not handled properly um, in these truths, the, the, the book, and so I'm taking issue. With, um, with the book. Um, let me repeat the sentence. The convention, that is the Philadelphia Convention, was very nearly at an impasse, broken only by a deal involving the Northwest Territory, a Northwest Ordinance decreeing that any new state entering the Union formed north of the Ohio River would be without slavery, um, while that south of the Ohio would continue slavery. The measure passed on July 13th, now, there is an article by a fellow named Staunton Lind who said, well, there's some conversation back and forth between the Philadelphia Convention and the Confederation Congress, but the, the, even the timing here is a little tricky because New York to Philadelphia, um, yeah, now it's an Amtrak ride. It's you know just a few hours in a car, but it would be several days back and forth um, uh, uh, back then, and there's very little evidence of, of any of this, but in any event... Her sentences don't say that. They somehow, they, they pretty clearly say, seem to say that the Northwest Ordinance came from the Philadelphia Convention, and that's just false. Um, they didn't even have the power to legislate. So, a, a, anyway, so um, uh, um, why, listen, this is slightly awkward, and, and, and I'm inviting Professor Lepore to come on the podcast to talk about these things with us. Um, if she wants to um, double down on the claims, let's let's hear the argument. If not, actually, these errors should be corrected, just as I'm going to try to correct any error that 
um, is found in, in, in my work and, and put it on the website. And, and these claims about slavery and American history are really important today. They're so important to get right. Um, and, and I don't think she got 1775, 76 right. I don't think she's getting 1787 right. And I'm hugely critical of the pro-slavery compromises made in the Constitution in the three-fifths clause, which is part of the Electoral College, as well as the apportionment of the House of Representatives. I'm not going to go into great detail here, but this has been a theme of mine um, since um, uh, actually the 1990s in op-eds after Bush versus Gore in 2000. In my 2005 book, America's Constitution and Biography, I basically make three claims. The Constitution was pro-democracy, pro-slavery, and pro-national security, themes of the current book. So, so those are two of my objections to Professor Lepore's work. A slavery and the revolution is misdescribed, and slavery in the Constitution, and especially slavery in the West, is, is misdescribed. And that's going to be an important issue because it's going to lead to civil war, slavery in the West. Yes, okay. because that's, you know, Lincoln is, is very big on... No further extension of slavery. He keeps talking about how he'll leave it in place. You know, he won't disturb it where it exists. Right. But he's very concerned about extension to the West. Read my lips, no new slavery, um, uh, to anticipate George H.W. Bush. And actually, the story of the Northwest Ordinance is a very interesting one. We don't really have time to go into it here. We're, we're going to go into it just a bit when I talk about Noah Feldman before the end mm-hmm. of today, another great Harvard professor. So just hold that thought about the Northwest Ordinance, and let me just identify very quickly the third thing that Professor Lepore says, and she's not the only one. Actually, Noah Feldman says this too. She basically says that the Philadelphia Convention... Um, uh, their conversations were secret at the time, and they were, but that the conversations that were held by the delegates in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787 remained secret, and she says, you know, basically for 50 years until Madison's notes were uh, published. For audience members who are particularly interested in that, um, this is um, Professor Lepore's book, These Truths, A History of the United States, um, at page 121. Um, and uh, Professor Feldman, actually in a book that he uh, writes, a biography of James Madison, says the same thing at page 402. Um, and one of the big um, uh, uh, themes that I emphasize in my chapter on the Philadelphia Convention is, yes, um, the, uh, the conversations occurred behind closed doors during the summer, but as soon as the convention went public with, with its plan on September 17th, 1787, the secrecy ban lapsed. The delegates were permitted to talk about anything that had happened uh, in the preceding months and did so, talked, that is, about what had happened behind closed doors with abandon. So during the ratification process, people from George Washington on down, James Madison um, on down, ta- uh, Ben Franklin on down, talked about what had happened behind closed doors. Uh, and that's important um, if um, uh, we're having conversation about just exactly how democratic or not was the Constitution. Yeah, it was drafted in secret, but it was ratified in public, and in that public ratification process where there was a special vote, um, especially democratic vote that... that, that, that um, um, among uh, 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 
ordinary Americans that, that happened up and down the continent, a series of votes um, in state after state. Um, in that process, the delegates actually were absolutely free to talk about things that had um, transpired um, uh, uh, behind closed doors in Philadelphia and did talk about them. In fact, George Washington was, uh, during the convention, attempted to enforce the secrecy. Um, but not only did he not do so after the convention, but he actually himself wrote a letter to, uh, I believe, Lafayette, uh, describing some of the discussions. Exactly so. And so you might say, well, why were they even secret during the time? And the idea is, um, if everything is going to be tweeted out immediately, then it's going to be really hard to float a trial balloon, to change your mind. So um, just like today, um, uh, 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 sometimes you know, there are um, back-channel discussions, back and forth, um, and then there's a public statement that's made. Um, and, and then once we finally agreed on our, our public proposal, um, all sorts of stories start to fill about, filter um, in, uh, um, uh, uh, filter out into the um, public discourse about what the earlier negotiations were all about. But sometimes while you're conducting the negotiation, it, there has to be at least a temporary period of confidentiality. And that's all there was. That is... Um, Professor Lepore and, and Professor Noah Feldman, one of my um, brilliant students, in fact, um, uh, are not unique in thinking that this secrecy ban um, uh, lasted uh, throughout the ratification process and beyond. That m many people seem to think that. It's just they happen to have said it recently and prominently. And yeah, I'm a Yale guy, so I'm going to notice it when the Harvard folks especially um, make a mistake and, and, and call them on it. But again, it's not just that it, it's not really a matter of, of a gotcha. It actually matters because it contributes to a narrative of the Constitution as an undemocratic, you know, hoodwink of the, uh, of, the pe of the people, that the ratification was bogus, that the newspapers were owned by the, uh, you know, the, the, the oligarchs and, and so forth. And that takes me to another great Harvard professor. He's a dear friend of mine. I hold him in very high esteem. His name is Michael Klarman. He's a winner of the Bancroft Prize for a book from Jim Crow to Civil Rights. I blurbed that book um, very enthusiastically. And you assigned that book in one of our um, Ever Scholar Model courses, and it took me about three weeks to read it. Uh, from Jim Crow to Civil Rights? Yes. Oh, I, I'd forgotten that. Okay, so I, I do I do tell people to read it. It's a great book. Um, I also have assigned portions of his book, The Framers' Coup. Um, but I love that book less because that book basically presents the Constitution more in a tradition of Charles Beard and Howard Zinn as being basically a pro-property anti-democracy document and it really downplays the democratic bona fides of the document and the ratification process. Um, my point is that um, given that the framers understood from day one that they were going to have to put the Constitution to a vote, a special vote, um, and in fact in that vote, a point that Clarman doesn't tell the reader, in eight of the 13 states, ordinary property qualifications were eliminated um, or uh, lowered compared to what they ordinarily were. Um, in New York, for example, all adult free male citizens got to vote on the Constitution's ratification. All adult free male citizens, no race tests, no property qualifications, no literacy 
tests, no religious tests. Those aren't the ordinary rules for New York. Those are the rules for the special jubilee year-like ratification of the Constitution. We, the people, to ordain and establish this Constitution. There was epic free speech. You could oppose the Constitution and, and not be um, ostracized, um, voted off the island, so to speak. Um, and uh, people who oppose the Constitution become presidents, James Monroe, vice presidents, Elbridge Gerry, George Clinton, justices on the Supreme Court, um, Samuel Chase. Epic free speech. They're the best ideas, the opponents become the Bill of Rights. These folks are listened to. People talk and, and listen and, and change their minds. Um, and also, it's not that Americans you know, were, were particularly saintly, because during the revolutionary time, this was certainly not true. Oh, yeah. The Declaration of Independence wasn't put to a vote. None of the state constitutions since 1776 was put to a vote. Articles of Confederation weren't put to a vote. So this is And also, if stuff. you opposed it, you were in trouble. Oh, no one who opposes the Declaration of Independence goes on to really be an important figure in, in independent America, or almost no one. Um, so, um, and the ancients who had democracies, that democracy wasn't a very widespread proce- uh, um, practice, but, but those places that had them never had put them to special votes in, in this way. So Clarman downplays all of that and, oh, and, and tends to exaggerate, I think, probably... Um, the, the secrecy of the whole thing. Again, it's the framers coup, you know, as if it's a kind of coup d'etat kind of plot behind closed doors. That's at least the, the implication the, of the, the, the tone um, of, of this, this, this word in the title, framers coup. Um, so I think um, uh, uh, Clarman's book really downplays the democratic nature of the Constitution, and it's not just that they put it to a vote, knowing that they were going to be putting it to a vote, that was clear from day one, and knowing from day one that delegates would actually be free to talk, that the secrecy ban would lapse, that was understood, that it was going to be a temporary ban. So knowing those things, oh, we're going to have to get people to buy in with a vote, and, and people are going to be able to, the, the delegates are going to be able to talk um, during that process. They put into the document all sorts of democratic sweeteners. Um, you can vote for members of, the, of Congress, which you can't under the Articles of Confederation in general. You, you just earlier reminded our audience that the Confederation Congress was really different than the Congress that we have today. The Congress that we have today is elected. The House is directly elected. That wasn't true of the Confederation Congress. Um, and there's a census. Um, that's a democratic idea, and, and it's borrowing from the, the best states that have this practice, New York and, and Pennsylvania. And we're, we're going to pay lawmakers. So if you're a person of modest means, you can still actually serve. You don't have to be independently wealthy. Um, no um, religious tests. That's an amazing inclusive, the inclusive idea. So all these things, um, these democratic um, sweeteners um, uh, are, are put into the document. And I think my friend, Mike Klarman, really downplays all of that. So, and, he, and he's, of course, at, at Harvard. So I've, I'll come back to Noah Feldman in just a minute, but I've now already mentioned uh, the great Jill Lepore and her Three mistakes, one about slavery and the revolution, one about slavery and the uh, Confederation Northwest Ordinance Convention, um, and one about the, um, uh, the nature of, of, of secrecy at the Philadelphia Convention, which is much more limited. So I've talked about Jill Lepore. I've mentioned briefly Noah Feldman. I'm going to come back to him. He also, I think, misstates the secrecy. 
Florman doesn't emphasize the secrecy quite as much, but the word coup really suggests that this is an undemocratic thing, and in fact, it was a very democratic thing, and he underestimates that, and he does so, again, in a, in a, um, a, a tradition that, that really is ungenerous to the Constitution, um, uh, in the tradition of ungenerosity of uh, Howard Zinn and, um, and, and Charles Beard before him. Basically, um, uh, treating great American achievements as um, something less than that. Um, so um, let me just say one other thing about uh, Noah Feldman, um, come back to the Northwest Ordinance, and then I'll mention the final Harvard professor who actually wrote a rather generous review of my book in the Washington Post, thank you very much, um, but said a couple of things that I'll know, a pushback against, you know, very gently. Before we, we leave this, though, I just want to point out that your, uh, what you were saying about secrecy in the, in the Constitutional Convention, you do have a lengthy endnote that provides ample documentation on this. And uh, thank you for that. Yes, um, a little more detail than you'd ever <laughs> want, we perhaps. We didn't go into it here to the same degree we did for the, uh, the first Jill, Jill Lepore, uh, but it, it is available, so um, you can... Re- Thanks, Andy, for that reminder. Now, Noah Feldman is an absolutely brilliant constitutional scholar at the Harvard Law School. He um, he is a Harvard undergrad, um, a Harvard graduate of of Harvard College, Rhodes Scholar, um, uh, Yale Law School graduate, uh, one of my most brilliant students ever. um, uh, Written many books on, on on all sorts of topics and and. One of the books that he wrote is about James Madison, and I think he's too nice to James Madison, um, which is true of many biographers, not, not necessarily all biographers, not, not Robert Cairo, for example, and, and Andy, you're a huge Robert Cairo fan, um, and he goes after Robert Moses just a bit and goes after Lyndon Johnson um, just a bit. But many biographers think, let's say, of David McCullough and John Adams. We talked in an earlier podcast about John Adams and the Sedition Act. But David McCullough is such a nice guy, he can't quite bring himself to, to really dwell on, on um, uh, Adams's um, uh, failures and, 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 um, and faux pas. Um, in his uh, very interesting biography of Madison... Uh, which came out in 2017, The Three Lives of James Madison, Genius, Partisan, President. Uh, Professor Feldman uh, presents a picture of Madison that's too flattering, too generous. He sees Madison as really the father of the Constitution. Lots of people do, but um, I try to make a very forceful case that it's not remotely James Madison. It's all George Washington. I'm not going to go into all the details of that. We've talked about that already a bit when we talked about Washington. The Constitution was designed by and for George Washington, um, not um, James Madison. Um, um, but uh, the biggest, my biggest disagreement with Feldman, I have many disagreements that I sprinkle throughout the book, but my biggest is that Feldman doesn't really tell the story of Madison's trajectory. Um, uh, There are some small issues. uh, 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 For example, 
Feldman is more generous toward Madison on uh, Madison's uh, rather silly ideas, uh, actually, in my view, that the bank is unconstitutional, the Bank of the United States, ideas that he floats um, in the first Congress and then re- you know abandons because they, they deserved abandonment. Hamilton was absolutely right on that. Matt, uh, John Marshall was absolutely right on that. The Supreme Court unanimously was right on that. Uh, Supreme Court, including Madison appointees, um, Madison himself changes his mind and signs a bank bill into law. Um, so I talk about the bank bill. I talk about, um, uh, and, and Feldman doesn't really tell the story, in my view, um, uh, that way. Um, I talk about Madison saying um, certain carriage tax is unconstitutional, and of course it's not, and the Supreme Court unanimously says otherwise. And So Madison says all sorts of silly things, in fact, um, because he's a Virginia Paul. Um, and he's and he's pandering to his local base, um, um, but the biggest area where I call him out, um, and I call out Madison, and all the Madison biographers, basically, except for Rick Brookheiser. Um, uh, so, um, but especially I call out Noah Feldman. He's not unique. Um, I criticize uh, Lynn Cheney. He wrote a biography of. Um, Madison, the former, Eileen Cheney is the, the former second lady of the United States, the mother of Liz Cheney and uh, spouse of Dick Cheney. I criticize even my, my great friend, um, the estimable um, and eminent um, historian Jack Raycove, um, uh, another Madison biographer. But here's the biggest thing that, that Feldman in particular, I think, because uh, doesn't address, because Feldman makes the, tries to argue that Madison is this great constitutionalist. Well, slavery is really important, as we've been talking about. And Madison, early on, is the legislative champion of the Northwest Ordinance. This was an idea that originated with Jefferson of Virginia and got adopted by the Confederation Congress um, in the summer of 1787, not by the Constitutional Convention, um, but by the Confederation Congress meeting in a different city in New York. Um, and Madison helps push that bill through the first Congress as he pushes through all sorts of other legislation. He's the leading legislator in the House. Um, and that bill prohibits slavery in uh, the, the Northwest Territory, um, uh, in modern-day o- Ohio and, and, and adjoining states. So good for Madison, good for Jefferson. They're limiting slavery's spread in the West. By the end of their lives, these very same people, Jefferson and Madison, are advocating for slavery's extension in the West, for a thing called diffusion. Let's spread slavery around. They oppose the Missouri Compromise, which excludes slavery um, in, in further Western territories, which is just an extension of the Northwest Ordinance that Jefferson conceived and that Madison pushed through Congress. As young idealists, they were opposed to slavery's extension, but they form a political party to, to, to push back against John Adams, who has criminalized the opposition. We've talked about that in previous episodes. And having formed that political party, they basically follow the base and do what the party wants. And it's a party that has a Southern base, and they 
sell their souls. And this is an issue today. What is are, is Lynch is Liz Cheney gonna gonna follow the truth, or is she gonna follow her party? And Madison and Jefferson start out knowing slavery is wrong deep in their bones and trying to limit slavery in the West and end up as whores for slavery. Madison going so far as to say that the Missouri Compromise uh, uh, prohibiting slavery in certain Western territories is unconstitutional. That's preposterous. It's the exact opposite of what Madison said and did before. It's going to lead to, it's that, that is the, the very argument that Roger Tawney is ridiculously going to advocate in Dred Scott in 1857, that Lincoln is going to call an astonisher in legal history that helps precipitate the Civil War, and Madison has gone from being you know, principled anti-slavery person to being basically a pro-slavery whore, and we could talk about politicians today in, in, uh, who follow the party um, and its imperatives over constitutional principle and the truth. And I'm especially critical of Noah Feldman, above all, because he does not tell that story at all. He doesn't seem to see that story at all. And his book is about the, consti- the constitutional genius of James Madison. That's his fundamental thesis. And I'm saying, oh, no, I, I don't quite see it. You're not giving, you're, you're giving uh, Madison way too much credit for the Constitution, which he doesn't deserve. Um, you are um, uh, ignoring the um, constitutional contributions of uh, Washington and Hamilton. You are um, not talking about... Um, uh, many of, of Madison's constitutional faux pas about the bank early on and how preposterous his ideas were or the carriage tax. But most of all, you're not even telling the story of the arc of the man's life in which, yes, he did great things like push uh, uh, champion uh, freedom of speech against John Adams, but on slavery, his is a story of um, dissent, of uh, of, de- of decline, of someone who started out young and idealistic and ended up as a pro-slavery Paul. Um, and, and if you're a biographer, you have to tell the story of the life and the trajectory and the arc, the good and the bad. Uh, and Noah, I think you didn't do that. That's what I say in the book. And, and if you think I'm being unfair um, or I've missed something or just wrong, come on the podcast. We'd love to have you and make your case. Uh, just or better yet, if you agree, come on the podcast and make and, and a call. <laughs> the, um, and that's the same invitation to Professor Lepore and my friend Mike Klarman as well. And I'm going to end now with a final invitation to a generous reviewer of the, the book in the Washington Post, um, someone, I, I'm not sure, I, I, maybe I've met him, but, but only passingly, um, Professor Ken Mack, and he wrote a generous review, but he, he said one thing that I actually want to take a little bit of issue with, um, and it takes us back, amazingly enough, to that very same Jill Lepore sentence about Dunmore's proclamation. Mack's review appeared in the 
May 14th issue of the Washington Post. Um, here's how it begins, and it's very generous. Kiel Rita Mars, The Words That Made Us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840, is the rarest of things, a constitutional romance. Uh, Amar, an eminent professor of law and political science at Yale, has great affection for a subject as a text that is worthy of loving engagement by scholars and the public at large. Um, he um, then goes on to uh, uh, say, you know, perhaps I maybe love the Constitution a little bit too much, um, um, and and the, 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 uh, not just the Constitution, but the, the, the founders more generally. And here's um, one uh, 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 reservation that he, he articulates. Um, Amar currently dismisses those who disagree, at one point railing against Quote, radical chic intellectuals who argue on MSNBC with barely suppressed smirks that Americans revolted in 1776 mainly to protect slavery, unquote. When, and this is now Mac, in truth, well-respected professional historians have engaged in a spirited debate over the role that slavery played in the revolution. Um, so there's a slight implication here that, um, oh, I'm not, you know, uh, myself a well-respected professional historian. And I would say, actually, I am. I, I don't have a PhD, but I studied, um, I have a degree in history, and I studied under the, the best of them at, at Yale College, uh, people like um, Ed Morgan, um, of the great Amer uh, eminent historian. Uh, uh, historian of, of, of the founding period. But what does Ken Mack cite for the proposition that, in truth, well-respected professional historians have engaged in a spirited debate over the role that slavery played in the revolution? Because remember, he takes issue with me for the very thing where I'm taking issue, in effect, with Jill Lepore. Um, the claim that quote, Americans revolted in 1776 mainly to protect slavery, and I say that's preposterous. And there's a, a hyperlink um, uh, in his uh, re uh, review on the online version um, to this spirited debate over the role that professional historians have engaged in over the role that slavery played in the revolution. Now, when you click on that hyperlink, it takes you actually to... Um, the February 2020 um, issue, um, 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 volume 125, issue one of the American Historical Review. Um, and in that um, issue, there's a, there's a whole discussion of basically the uh, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones um, 1619 claim and the pushback from the against it from the likes of Gordon Wood, James Oakes, J J uh, Jim McPherson, um, and Sean Wilentz, among others. Um, here's actually what they say. Um, what what this piece that it, which is the piece that Ken Mack himself cites for what apparently I'm disregarding or overlooking. This is the this is the uh, the discussion. The letter writers, that's the critics, the, the Gordon Wood at all. Um, um, uh, 
object to the primary offender of this letter seems to be Nicole Hannah-Jones in her sweeping essay that frames the entire 1619 project. Um, Particularly objectionable, the historians insist, is her assertion that, quote, one of the primary reasons the colonists decided to declare their independence from Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery, unquote. As the letter bluntly points out, this is not true. Okay, that's, that's the thing that Ken Mack is actually citing. For. Oh, there's a debate among professional historians. This is not true. And this is from a guy who's very sympathetic to Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 Project. But on this key point, on which I, in the rock on which, you know, I'm standing, this guy says, oh, this is not true. And he goes on to say, Admittedly, at a minimum, Nicole Hannah-Jones's formulation seriously overstates the anti-slavery bona fides of the British Empire at the time. Just so. I'm saying, don't think the Brits are heroes. They're worse than the Americans. Um, the, uh, West Indian slavery is worse than South Carolinian slavery. They're not doing any, they, they don't have an abolitionist society yet. Dunmore is utterly cynical. He's not proposing abolition. Um, he's just proposing emancipation and only for rebel slaves, not for loyalist slaves. Okay. Um, that's one thing that um, uh, he says uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones um, overstates. Not to mention... Here's what the, the editor of um, uh, this essay also says, not to mention the universality of pro-slavery views in the colonies. So what he's saying is, well, there's difference between the South Carolinians and other folks. Okay. So that's actually the thing that Ken Max cites to refute my claim that th- this is bogus um, stuff that's appearing on MSNBC and, and, and corrupting the minds of, 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 of the youth, of the next generation. So um, just a gentle pushback um, to, uh, against Professor Max's gen- gentle pushback. And, of course, he's in, in a way you know, on the same side as, um, uh, as Jill Lepore. Because um, remember, she, hers is the foundation for the 1619 claim. And I'm saying it's hooey. And it was hooey when um, uh, Jill Lepore said it. And it's hooey when Nicole Hannah-Jones repeated it. And it was hooey when the New York Times tried to, you know, uh, double down on all of this and, and defending her. And it's hooey when Ken Mack is um, raising questions uh, about my uh, claims. And I'll stand with, on this, the likes of Gordon Wood, James McPherson, James Oakes, and Sean Wilentz. Now, on other things, I'm going to push back against them. Um, and in future podcasts, we're going to go through the Ivy League. We're going to talk about Princeton and the great Sean Wilinson, where I agree with him on 1619, and where I disagree um, with him on the three-fifths clause and its significance. Um, um, And um, in yet another podcast, I'll tell you how I am so influenced by um, the towering Gordon Wood and his lifetime body of work, but how I... Uh, in my book, um, I'm really calling into question one of the central claims of his work, um, which is all about actually 
Madison's ideas and their significance to the Constitution, and in particular, the, the significance of the Federalist Number 10 and the restrictions on states imposed by Article 1, Section 10. So stay tuned because we've we got to go through the whole Ivy League. So we've got Sean Wilentz at Princeton. Or we're going to have to talk about the, the famous Columbia scholars like uh, Charles Beard. We'll get to Brown University where um, Gordon Wood um, is an emeritus professor. We'll work through the whole Ivy League. But, but Harvard really is such a genuinely preeminent place that it deserved an episode all of its own. Of course, uh, if you were an Ever Scholar, you could attend the August class where Professor Amar is going to be joined, in addition to the great Stephen Smith, um, by Gordon Wood, who has agreed to come. And uh, we're going to make sure to get this episode recorded before that so that uh, they can go at it. Um, and not just the two of them, because Ever Scholar is not just lectures, but actually all the students, all the scholars, will have uh, done the reading and will be participating in the seminar discussion. So uh, sparks will fly. Uh, or not, because Gordon Wood is such a generous and gentle person, and yes. I disagree with him with the greatest of trepidation. So um, uh, it'll be, I'm really looking forward to being in conversation with him. Okay, until then. Okay.